You are listening to 90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. Stay tuned for the Heartland Labor Forum, radio that talks back to the boss. Forum, a weekly show of news, information, and commentary by and for the working people of Kansas City. This show is produced by a team of volunteers from a broad range of workplaces and unions. The views expressed on the Heartland Labor Forum are ours and not necessarily those of KKFI or any unions involved. And welcome again to the Heartland Labor Forum. I'm Judy Ansel. Tonight's show is being underwritten by United Steelworkers District 11 and United Auto Workers Local 249. United Steelworkers District 11 represents 35,000 members in the Midwest. It protects worker rights and organizing the unorganized. We support union-made products. And United Auto Workers Local 249 members building the best Ford trucks and vans in the world. The Heartland Labor Forum and KKFI thank our underwriters for their support. On tonight's show, last November, AFT and AAUP, that's American Federation of Teachers and the American Association of University Professors, announced that they were organizing 1,500 faculty and staff at the University of Kansas. This week, or tonight on the Heartland Labor Forum, we'll check in with worker leaders, a worker leader, to learn the issues and see how the campaign is going. Is an election in sight? Then, White, the White House has announced MPOWER, the Multilateral Partnership for Organizing Worker Empowerment and Rights, an initiative focused on advancing labor and worker rights throughout the globe. Really? The U.S. wants to play a positive role in support of worker rights in other countries? Well, we'll find out tonight. In the news, huge strikes in France and England, and Two new laws protect pregnant and nursing workers. Our feature at the end of the show is Safety First with Mary Ariel. Her stories are OSHA cites three Amazon facilities for hazardous work conditions. What a surprise. OSHA finds that Kansas City-based company failed to protect workers and public employee deaths. Preventable, but not prevented. Now for the news. Now for the news from our side, February 2nd, 2023. 
On December 29, 2022, the following two federal bills were signed into law, expanding protections for both pregnant and breastfeeding workers. The first is the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act, which will ensure pregnant and postpartum workers are not forced off the job and get the accommodations they need without facing discrimination or retaliation in the workplace. It goes into effect June 27th of this year. The law will close a gap in federal law that left pregnant and postpartum workers without remedy if they needed accommodations in order to prevent health complications and keep working. Prior to the law, existing law, like the Pregnancy Discrimination Act, only provided workers the right to receive accommodations if they could identify other similarly situated people in their workplace who received accommodations, an insurmountable hurdle for most workers. Likewise, the Americans with Disabilities Act only provided the right to reasonable accommodation if the worker had a pregnancy-related disability. Some examples of accommodations that a pregnant worker can, can get include light duty, more frequent restroom breaks, a stool or chair to sit on while working, and a schedule change. The second bill is the Pump for Nursing Mothers Act, which closes loopholes in the Break Time for Nursing Mothers Law of 2010. That law required employers to give reasonable break time and a private non-bathroom space for lactating employees to pump milk during the workday. The Pump Act expands coverage to nearly 9 million more workers, including teachers, registered nurses, farm workers, and many others. It also allows an employee to file a lawsuit against an employer that violates the law. PAI reports that famed labor organizer and hellraiser Mary Harris, Mother Jones, is coming back. No, not as a zombie, but as a memorial statue in a prominent place in a city where she raised a lot of hell, Chicago. The Mother Jones statue campaign kicked off with a $36,000 grant from the government of Ireland, where she was born. And now, after appropriate artistic approvals later this year, the Mother Jones We Shall Rise monument will be erected probably not far from the historic water tower on North Michigan Avenue, where Jones began her pro-worker marches after immigrating to Chicago. A member of the Mother Jones Historic Project Committee said this sculpture will signal Chicago is a union town, that immigrants and working class built the city, and that we are part of a tradition of struggle. Mary Harris Jones, born in 1837 in County Cork, fled the Great Famine, grew up in Toronto, and after losing her husband, a union molder and organizer, and her children to a yellow fever epidemic in Memphis, moved to Chicago where she opened a dress shop. That too she lost in the Great Fire of 1871. From then on, until she died at 100 years old, she was a labor organizer, first for the Knights of Labor and then for the United Mine Workers. She traveled from West Virginia coal fields through, south to, through the South, where she campaigned against child labor, out to Colorado in 1913 to support workers at Ludlow, to Mexico to support the Mexican Revolution, and to Philadelphia from whence she led a ch march of child laborers to Teddy Roosevelt's home on Long Island. She came through and spoke in Kansas City a number of times. She was also at the founding convention of the Industrial Workers of the World in Chicago in 1905. The Mother Jones Historic Project Committee is still raising funds for the statue and the landscaping around it. The sculpture will now represent a labor history, women's history, the history of immigrants, and the long struggle of people before profit. It will be the first sculpture of Mother Jones is long overdue, we say, the committee declared. To donate to the statue, find a link at motherjonesmuseum.org slash statue. 
The payday report tells us that in Paris, 2.8 million workers were on strike this week, according to the union CGT. Workers remain upset over a plan to raise the minimum age for them to receive their pensions from 62 to 64. Eric Meyer of the Sud Rail Union told a TV station, Today, the government is in a corner. It has only to withdraw its reform. Meanwhile, in Great Britain, over half a million public employees are on strike, including educators, railroad engineers, security guards, and sanitation employees. Workers are protesting a proposed law that would allow the government to fire workers for striking. The Trade Union Congress, TUC, General Secretary Paul Nowak told the National News this week, I joined the psychotherapists on picket line last week. It was the first time they had been on strike and they were reluctant to take industrial action. But they received huge support from members of the public and their mood was upbeat and defiant. The Topeka Capital Journal reported that Medicaid administrators in Kansas are finalizing a plan to kick upward of 125,000 people off their government health insurance. During the COVID-19 pandemic, federal law blocked states from ending Medicaid benefits for people who were no longer eligible. Now, the federal government is giving states 12 months to restart eligibility checks as federal funding winds down. State Senator Pat Petty confirmed that people's eligibility will be reviewed in the same month that the benefits originally started. One Senate Republican from Wichita, Senator Renee Erickson, urged the Medicaid administrator to kick people off as soon as possible to save taxpayer money. But the administrator rebuffed that suggestion, saying, It will not happen overnight. We cannot handle that amount of volume. Every one of these cases requires actual human eyes and human hands working it. We can't just run a report and kick everybody off because we don't know whether some of these folks are still eligible, and we won't know until their case comes up for redetermination. Tonight's news was read by Sean Saving, Judy Ansel, Brian Harrell, and I'm Tom Gibkin. And welcome to the Heartland Labor Forum. I'm Sean Saving. Everywhere you look, it seems a new union organizing effort is underway. From retail and fast food workers to the tech sector, interest in unions is at a level not seen in decades. Though the percentage of workers in a union declined slightly in 2022, the number of union members actually increased by a quarter million, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. One such area seeing an uptick in agitation is higher education. Years of stagnant state funding have led to increased tuition rates, cost-cutting, and a slow transition of colleges and universities into business incubators more than places of higher learning and intellectual exploration. Simultaneously, wages have stagnated in many institutions, and job satisfaction has declined. The largest university in the region, the University of Kansas, is no exception. And And now, many faculty and staff there have decided enough is enough. Through a joint operation of the American Federation of Teachers and the American Association of University Professors, Academics United, KU, announced its intention to create a faculty and staff union at the university. This union has been organizing and collecting cards with the hope of holding an election in the coming months. Joining us tonight to talk about this effort and what the union would like to see changed is a member of AUKU's Communications Committee, Burl Oakley, Distinguished Professor of Molecular Biosciences. 
Professor Oakley, welcome to the Heartland Labor Forum. Thanks, Sean. Good to be with you. Uh, before we get started, uh, in the interest of full disclosure, I have to tell you all that I am a staff researcher at the Kansas Geological Survey, which is a branch of the University of Kansas, and would likely be a member of any bargaining unit if this union election were to succeed. Also, the ideas and opinions expressed here by either of us are not those of the university or the state of Kansas, et cetera, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> uh, so, Professor, I think some of our listeners might be surprised that KU doesn't already have a union. So why the union, unionization effort now? Like, How have conditions changed at the university in recent years that necessitate this step? Well, I think a lot of uh, people, including me, would uh, say that we really needed a union with collective bargaining. We've needed such a union for a few decades now, I think. Um, what's changed now? There are a few specific uh, uh, problems and grievances and so forth that I'll be happy to talk about in a few minutes, if you'd like. Um, but one thing you've already alluded to, and that is we have a good platform now for organizing. So uh, uh, the AAUP chapter there has been an advocacy chapter, um, and we've done some good things uh, in that uh, capacity. Um, and we have explored unionization to a certain extent, but, uh, you know, uh, a, a chapter with not too many people uh, would have trouble sort of organizing. And the fact that the uh, AFT and AAUP have affiliated and created an organization that's interested in uh, uh, organizing higher education has certainly given us uh, a sort of a platform to work with. Uh, so I think that's the main thing that's different. Okay. Okay. So what a what are what are some of the main issues and concerns uh, that that the uh, unions wants to address? Well, um, so one of the things that sort of brought this to a head was the fact that when the Board of Regents allowed uh, tenured uh, faculty to be uh, fired without cause, and the Chancellor at KU didn't immediately say that he wasn't going to do that, that. Uh, created a lot of concern among the faculty. Um, people realized that we didn't have real contracts, um, that we were serving at the pleasure of the administration. Um, there were also some um, things having to do with teaching during the pandemic. Uh, uh, you know, there were people who would have preferred to teach online uh, because of age and various other uh, sort of things that made them more susceptible to COVID. Um, and the administration was was not overly uh, friendly to that. Um, and there are sort of longstanding sort of chronic problems, uh, the declining number of faculty, um, the salaries have stagnated, and in fact, they've decreased with, res uh, with respect to inflation, uh, in relation to inflation. Um, um, there's a general sort of the university is run in a, a, a top-down fashion. You know, the administration makes decision with really, honestly, minimal uh, input from the faculty. Um, and some of those uh, decisions haven't worked out overly well. Um, there are problems with retaining good faculty. I've lost three collaborators since I've been at uh, KU for 14 and a half years. And three of my collaborators have moved to better jobs at other places <laughs> over that period of time. So. Yeah. How do salaries compare at KU to its what they call their peer institutions? Yeah. So um, 
we're a member of the American Association of Universities, which is a group of 65 of the uh, uh, top research institutions in the country. And we are either at the very bottom of that or we're next to the bottom. Uh, it, wow. we, we in Missouri sort of compete for the, for the bottom. <laughs> wow. Well, yeah, that's no wonder you're losing faculty. I mean, right. this is uh, so you mentioned earlier a communications issue, a um, sort of top down approach. Folks who are familiar with academia know that a lot of universities have what's called a, a faculty senate and an, a, stu, a, a staff senate, which is supposed to be this kind of deliberative body that that, uh, that advises the administration. KU has these these structures. Um, they're obviously pretty foreign, I think, to anybody but academia. Um, but they're elected members, uh, representatives, and they go and they help set policy. And they, uh, but why is that? not working or why is why why is that not enough i guess in terms of when you're saying about policy you know cons when you're talking about uh, the policy decision making process right yeah i think that i think you said the key word and that is advisory so i i know a number of people that have served on those uh, bodies and uh, they're good people and they do good work um but the administration can uh, summarily say well yeah, you know, we disagree, and then they can then do what they uh, would like. So, um, so as long as the university isn't bothered, they sort of work. But is what when the administration decides that they want to do something different, they can do something different. I think if we have a union, that will have some power. It, it typically, or we would like. Uh, for the uh, the faculty and, and staff senates and the uh, uh, union to work sort of in tandem, you know, to cooperate uh, for the good of all. Right, right. The you talked about salary. Uh, we, I mentioned in my introduction budget issues. Um, the university has run a a budget problem for a a number of years. Uh, we've you know, periodically, as a you know employee, we see these these. Um, presentations uh, about the budget projections, the, re the need for cuts, the need to do these different things uh, to save money, and then they're going to get us out of this big giant hole they've put us into. For <laughs> What do we know about why we're in this hole? And if that is the case, and we really are reliant upon money from other sources, most, a lot of times tax dollars, how... Is it is it realistic to think that there'll be main, meaningful pay increases? Well, in uh, so one key thing is budget transparency. So that's one thing that the union would like to get. So we can see the real story. Um, a brief anecdote about that. A former dean of liberal arts and sciences had a town hall meeting and um you know, his slides said that we'd gone from a $20 million surplus to a $40 million deficit in one year. So I, you know, to me, if you lose $60 million, you know, wow. you forget where, right? Yeah. And he never gave us a straight answer. Uh, I think uh, one of the things that has happened is that uh, for a period of time, the university uh, went through sort of a building spree with borrowed money, and we needed buildings and stuff, but the state wasn't coming forward with money for them. And so um, we shackled ourselves with, with quite a lot of uh, debt, 
Um, mm-hmm. And there are other expenses associated with new buildings, moving things to new buildings, you know, I mean, maintaining uh, them, keeping the lights maintaining on, maintaining all these sorts of things, you know, um, so that that uh, was a factor. One thing that I can say that it is not is faculty salaries, because um, the local AAUP chapter has a number of times over recent years filed a Kansas Open Records Act request for the um, names and rank and salaries of everybody that works for KU, um, which, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a public, public record. Yeah, public record, right. And so you can ask how many assistant professors are, how many associates and so forth. And tenure track faculty dropped um, from a thousand. It was exactly a thousand uh, in uh, t- 2009 to uh, 700 and uh, just just under 800 wow. uh, in 2000. Over 20 percent decrease in a decade. A little right. Decade. That, that's, now that's that's just you know that's people without you know it's like not like professor and chair or whatever. But that's just tenure track faculty that are you know don't have an administrative. Uh, Job. And that who's and, who's, and, and our salaries have been stagnant, right? Right, so you right. Drop the number of people, you have stagnant salaries. That money has to go somewhere, right? It's and, not and, going to us. and obviously, the workload has to go somewhere as well. Yeah. And yeah, so, yeah, yeah. is that is that is there been an increased workload on the faculty, or or is this being filled by uh, adjunct professors? Is is this adjunct teaching assistants? I mean, whatever the term is for. Yeah. Um. I. Th- I would need to look at the information more closely, but I remember when we first looked at it, we were surprised that we, um, although if you look back over a 20 year period, you get more non-tenure track uh, faculty, but over that period, there wasn't a big increase. So it was just an increase. It seemed like an increase in teaching load uh, wow. among faculty and probably the, uh, the, uh, non-tenure-track faculty as well. Uh, You are listening to the Heartland Labor Forum. I'm Sean Saving, and I'm talking with Professor Burl Oakley at the University of Kansas about the current union organizing campaign at the university. Um, You know, one of my questions here was, you're talking about, we talked a lot about faculty. I'm a staff uh, research person. Um, Who is actually going to be covered in this organizing effort? Is this faculty only? Does this include staff? Does it include administrative support? people you know what who who would be involved who'd be covered who gets to vote on this union yeah um so the kansas public employee relations board will have the final decision on the bargaining unit um what we would like and i sort of took some notes on this so it would be uh, people with uh professorial titles plus titles such as scientist curator specialist, research professor, clinical professor, librarian, uh, the professor's associate system full and, and uh, distinguished, uh, and then other ranks. And so basically the academic, you know, the, the professors, the tenure track and academic staff. Right. Okay. And so does because, this... I think... Uh, right, right. I mean, yeah, over at the survey, we probably have the, the biggest concentration of non-teaching research folks. So I don't know, you know, most you know, most of the de- departments, if you're in the department, you're involved in faculty teaching at some point. The survey being its own kind of separate item, but part of the university, we have a lot of people like myself who were just hired research engineers and, 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 and uh, analysts. So um, 
another question: Will this be just the Lawrence campus? Uh, does this also will this also cover Edwards campus or the uh, Med Center or those separate? So it will cover Edwards and uh, not the Med Center. Okay. At least that's what we request. As, as I say, the the uh, the uh, public employees labor board will will have the final say on so, that. But that's. Uh, you publicly announced last November. How's the organizing campaign going? Uh, I think it's going well. So um, so when we announced, before we announced, we surveyed a very large fraction of the prospective bargaining unit. And over half of the prospective bargaining unit signed a statement of purpose, uh, the, you know, what the union uh, was about. And we didn't uh, survey everybody. So it was a substantial majority of the people that we surveyed. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's the background. So when we went public, we started getting cards. I think it's a little early uh, to give numbers and stuff, but. I think we're a bit ahead of where a bit ahead of where we thought we would be at this time. Has the, how's the, how's the administration that. reacted? Uh, are, they, are they staying neutral or have you seen any retaliation? Uh, so far, they have done nothing. <laughs> nothing positive. I mean, they have been uh, maybe watching but not doing anything. So, uh, okay, yeah, I know it was brought up in a staff meeting I was in, and, and it just it was mentioned by. The administration, our new director, and that was it. So I, you know, I haven't heard much over uh, it where I'm at at all. Uh, the, um, you know, one of the things that uh, that the, being a public sector union, you're not control uh, the, you're not governed by the National Labor Relations Act. It's it's state controlled. Uh, the lo state law determines what happens with public unions. And as you said, the Public Employees Relationship Relations Board (PERB) is that what we have here in Kansas. Um, yeah, they they will sort of dictate who the bargain. They will tell us to make the decision on who the bargaining unit will be and, and uh, administer the election uh, or, or verify, I guess, validate the election results. Um, what being a thanks to the Supreme Court's Janus decision that says unions can't collect fair share fees anymore. Public employee unions can't. Uh, and that was explained to our listeners that was if you were a member of the bargaining unit but decided not to join, you would still have to pay a certain portion of the dues uh, because you were receiving benefits from the contract. We had those when I was in a union in the state of California. Uh, those are now outlawed by the Janus decision. Um, what does that mean for the union, a union in a, in, a in a situation like this where maybe not everybody signs up and therefore can get the benefit but doesn't uh, necessarily pay for it? Yeah, um, yeah. So about twenty states uh, had the uh, had the uh, 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 fair share laws, and those are outlawed now. Kansas has always been a quote right to work state, mm -hmm. <laughs> and so like it doesn't. Really, I mean, we've been uh, we've never had that kind of protection. So uh, basically, uh, it, you know, if you want to join the union and have. Uh, uh, they have, you know, union dues deducted from your payroll. You do that. Uh, if you don't want to, you don't have to. I will say that happily so far, most of the the great majority of the people that have signed the authorization cards have also signed requests to join the union and have dues deducted when it, uh, uh, you know, if 
it um, it comes to pass that we uh, get collective bargaining here. Well, King. great. That's great. So uh, do you think you'll be a election maybe coming up soon this spring or do you have any, any ideas on when that might be? Uh, you know, the, uh, the Kansas Labor Relations Board will, you know, have a say in that, um, okay. you know, right. So we will submit cards. You can submit at 30 percent. We want to have a lot more than 30 percent before we submit. And then the Kansas Labor Relations Board will, uh, Public Employees Relations Board, will uh, take its time and right. <laughs> could go slowly, right? Well, so. On that note, if, if somebody, if anybody out there is listening as a KU employee and they want to find out more, where, where can they go? Uh, what's the website? Yeah, we. I, I was just looking at it today to make sure I knew what I was talking about. <laughs> uh, it's a really good website. Uh, so it's uaku.org i think uh just uh lowercase uaku.org uh and we're also on twitter and facebook and instagram all right all right well thank you for being on the show professor oakley we appreciate it and uh good luck to you okay thank you it's a pleasure to be on the show this is sean saving you are listening to the heartland labor forum stay tuned after the break for empower the multilateral partnership for organizing the worker empowerment and rights with christina dismang close your eyes and listen very closely the sound of my I guess I'll just... This is Barry Lee. Join me every Thursday at 10 a.m. for Signal to Noise right here on KKFI. Every week, music to stimulate the mind and relax the soul. Now, as you listen, you will begin to relax. Hi, this is Daryl Oliver, Volunteer Coordinator at KKFI. Our phone drive will be starting soon, and we need volunteers for our phone bank. You can participate remotely or by coming to the station. All phone bank volunteers must be comfortable talking to donors on the phone and entering pledges on the computer. In addition, remote phone bank volunteers will need a reliable internet connection and a computer with a microphone and speakers. Sign up for a shift today at kkfi.org slash phone bank or contact me at 816-994-786. Hi, this is Judy Ansel. I first heard about Empower from the U.S. Department of Labor last December during a webinar, but it actually was announced in the fall of 2021 by Labor Secretary Marty Walsh. The people heading it, Thea Lee and Molly McCoy, have previously worked for the AFL-CIO and its Solidarity Center. So its promise is a hopeful one that the U.S. will stand up for labor rights around the world. A fact sheet states that Empower is a global initiative that unites governments, unions, labor academics, and civil society organizations committed to working in partnership to uphold and promote worker empowerment and rights. Empower is the multilateral partnership for organizing worker empowerment and rights. The Department of Labor pegs it as an investment of more than $120 million by the Department of Labor, the U.S. Agency for International Development, and the U.S. Department of State to fund programs that strengthen workers' rights and worker voice throughout the world. This is the largest financial commitment ever made by the U.S. government to advance workplace democracy and support union rights in the global economy. Associate Deputy Undersecretary Molly McCoy 
has a career that spans jobs with justice, the International Trade Union Confederation, and a long career with the AFL-CIO's Solidarity Center. Welcome to the show, Molly. Thanks very much, Judy. I'm really happy to be here. Uh, Well, great. So I gave a little explanation of what Empower is, but how would you describe it and why was it created? Absolutely. Um, So Empower, as you said, is a long title, uh, the Multilateral Partnership for Organizing Worker Empowerment and Rights, or Empower for short, because it is a mouthful. Um, And I think what I'd underscore is that it is a partnership. Everyone who has come together under Empower, which is national governments, trade unions, civil society, and some philanthropic organizations, are committed to working together to promote and uphold worker rights, and especially workers' rights to freedom of association and collective bargaining. And the reason that we came together is because we believe that unions have a fundamental role in democratic societies. We know that we can't build equitable, inclusive economies without unions. And you've heard this administration and and various others talk about how workers need to have a seat at the table, not just at the workplace, but in the governance of our economies and our societies. But what we see when we look around the world is that, you know, whether it's from things that are sort of captive audience meetings or sophisticated anti-union campaigns in the United States or as threatening as assassinations or violence against labor activists in countries like Guatemala, Guatemala or Honduras, workers aren't even getting to the table, right? There are tremendous tremendous challenges when uh, workers try to organize unions to defend their rights at work and advocate for themselves, advocate for their families uh, and their coworkers. And Empower was essentially created to address those challenges. We want to build the power of workers and their organizations. We want to elevate their role and the value in, in the global economy. And we can't do that if we're not keeping workers safe at the, the, the very fundamental and also looking for opportunities to really go deeper on dialogue between unions and governments and other counterparts, right? It's not just sort of a once in a while consultation and we say we've talked to labor, but really building a partnership from the start to tackle some of the most fundamental issues in our economy and our society. Well, that all sounds really great. I think the proof's going to be in the pudding, right? Absolutely. Let, let me t- let me take a recent example of gross violations of workers' rights, and that's the World Cup in Qatar, mm-hmm. where you know there was forced labor, there was uh, uh, you know thousands and thousands of guest workers, there were a number of deaths. Um, no, they couldn't even agree on how many workers died, um, extreme heat, and all sorts of other things. If Empower had existed at that point, what could you have done in that situation? In Qatar, I'll be honest, there's probably not a lot we could have done because we've built Empower very deliberately as a partnership between labor organizations, independent trade unions, governments, and civil society organizations. And in Qatar, you don't have the other half. Um, So um, Qatar couldn't be an Empower partner country because there's no counterpart. Um, That said, the way that Empower is tackling work and priorities around the world is very much following the guidance and the voices of workers' organizations. And so one of the first priorities of work that Empower partners have identified for our inaugural work, our inaugural year is occupational safety and health. And some of the priorities have been specific countries and specific sectors like chemicals manufacturing, but also major infrastructure uh, projects. One of the hopes for Empower is that by bringing this sort of different constellation of governments uh, that have tremendous diplomatic and trade influence, trade union organizations and democratic worker organizations that have deep networks and grassroots contacts 
all over the world, as well as firsthand information and philanthropic organizations that have sort of a nimbleness and a really agility with funding that uh, certainly we in government don't have, uh, that we can respond more quickly uh, and in different ways to the priorities we all agree on, including workers' fundamental safety and health on the job. So can you give me an example then of one particular country you're working in or issue you're working on um, at the get-go right now, just after you've started? Yeah, at the get-go, one of the the first and obviously urgent matters was exactly the kind of threats I mentioned just a minute ago. Um, One of the speakers that we featured at Empower's launch, Chim Sitar, who's a a young Cambodian woman who's the president of the Naga World Casino Workers Union, um, was actually arrested for the second time in a year on her way back from a global union uh, confederation meeting, that International Trade Union Confederation uh, Global Conference in Australia. Um, We highlighted her case. We had recorded her statement not knowing she was going to be arrested, you know, days later. Um, But one of the priority lines of work for Empower is mobilizing around urgent action. So getting multiple governments to respond both publicly through statements as well as uh, through other diplomatic channels that maybe aren't as public getting trade union organizations the support they need to publicize these cases. Um, And in Cambodia, we don't have that same sort of access, but um, emergency support to people who need it. So urgent actions to trade union organizations, activists and other labor organizations under threat has been defined by Empower's Partners as one of its primary lines of work going forward. Okay, so one of the things I saw in the literature was that um, you, one of the standards you're going to use is the uh, International Labor Organization's um, standards for for workers' rights, which are, you know, pretty comprehensive and and, and pretty basic as well. Mm-hmm. So you say you want to be a partnership with with the governments. What if they say to you, why should we respect these when the U.S. hasn't even ratified these standards? Yeah, that's a, a fair point. And coming from 20 something years in the labor movement, I have asked the same question many times. Yeah. Um, first, I, I want to go back to the partnership idea of Empower, and that is an, an opt in, not an all in. So we are not bringing every government to the table and Empower. We're not inviting them. Empower partners are very clear, and our founding partners in particular, that those that are participating in this are committed to working in partnership with unions and they are committed to worker rights. So it's not going to be, and we're still growing the partnership, everybody at the table to say we have, you know, 200 members in Empower. It's going to say these are the leading uh, worker organizations and government organizations that are really committed to this. On the question of ratification, the way that we have set up Empower is through a commitment to action, right? So uh, governments that are joining up as partners with Empower have to demonstrate their commitment on three fronts. First, what they're doing uh, in the United States and in the U.S., despite our lack of ratification of many ILO conventions, we are very confident that our laws align, right? That the laws in the United States around labor issues are aligned with the ILO conventions, even if the conventions themselves haven't been ratified. The second area of work is what uh, governments joining in power need to commit to in partnership or beyond their borders. So how are they not just upholding worker rights in their own country, but how are they giving support to neighboring countries? Is it through mentorship? Is it through um, 
you know, providing direct technical assistance? Is it through enforcing due diligence in their supply chains uh, in other countries? And then finally is what they are doing in cooperation through Impart and through Empower. So what are we all going to do together as partners in Empower? So it's those three lines of action rather than just looking at a slate of laws because we know there are countries that have ratified you know, every single ILO convention that's been written almost and then have an egregious record of enforcement um, and no real worker voice. So we wanted to focus this on actual demonstrable action rather than just what laws say. So you gave us a, an example of Cambodia. I, I assume that means that Cambodia is on board. Is that correct? No, no, not as a partner. Uh, the example that we gave was a trade unionist in Cambodia who has been arrested and is still detained. So Empower Partners are looking at her situation and the situation of her union uh, as one that's been you know, embattled for over a year, uh, defending their coworkers against uh, really unfair targeted layoffs of union members. Cambodia is not a partner in Empower. It's a situation that we're concerned about. And CHIM safety and freedom is something that all Empower Partners have committed to doing whatever they can to advance. So do you have an example of, of one who a country that has committed to this partnership yet? Yeah, absolutely. So our founding partner governments um, are South Africa, Argentina, Canada, Spain and Germany. So uh -huh. we're starting small. Um, and I should mention just the governance structures of Empower, since I had made such a point about partnership. Uh, there are two co-chairs of Empower for the inaugural period, it's the U.S. government and the International Trade Union Federation. And then on our steering committee, the steering committee members are the governments of Argentina, Canada, and Spain. And their labor counterparts are the AFL-CIO of the United States, COSATU, which is the Confederation of South African Trade Unionists, mm -hmm. and the International Domestic Workers Federation, or IDWF. Hmm. Okay. And I assume you're going to want to expand those partner countries, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that we have a uh, steering committee meeting of those groups, plus um, the ILO, which is an observer to empower and uh, forge foundations, funders, organizing for rights in the global economy also holds a seat on Tuesday coming up. And so one of the tasks for the steering committee is figuring out where to expand. As I said, it's not an all in, it's an opt in. So we're looking very carefully, but also enthusiastically at, you know, countries where for example, their presidents come out of the labor movement and have a history of fighting for democracy as potential new members. Uh, I guess you're thinking of Brazil, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, cool. So we're talking to Molly McCoy, who is with the U.S. Department of Labor in their new project called Empower, the Multilateral Partnership for Organizing Worker Empowerment and Rights. You, you mentioned the AFL-CIO. Are other U.S. unions involved in Empower, or do you just access them through the AFL-CIO? Right now, just through the AFL-CIO, there are affiliate unions that I of the AFL-CIO that have been very supportive. For example, uh, the American Federation of Teachers, Randy Weidgarten, spoke both at the initial uh, Summit for Democracy event where Empower was first announced by the sec secretary, as well as at the Empower launch event that we held just last December. But for now, the AFL affiliates are represented through the AFL-CIO, and we're, I think, certainly open to other unions joining. Okay. So here's a question. Recently, I was involved in 
trying to support some workers who were in Honduras who were building a U.S. embassy. And I called the State Department, talked to the person on the Honduras desk, and I said, what standards do you use when you when you do construction? And they said, well, we respect the laws of the country. And I thought, oh, God, <laughs> that's terrible because there's so many countries with very, very weak labor laws. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, does Empower have a role at all in improving how the U.S. itself is operating abroad because we do a lot of construction, for instance, and a lot of procurement in other countries. Is that part of Empower at all? Not directly. So Empower, I would say, is more reflective of the approach that the administration wants to take on labor overseas, which do include improving procurement processes, uh, improving the labor standards on infrastructure projects, as well as in our technical assistance. Um, And that's work that across the U.S. government in USAID, in the Department of State, here at Department of Labor, we're all working on together. But Empower is deliberately very focused on uh, what we can do to promote and protect uh, worker rights and in particular the right to freedom of association and collective bargaining. And because it's got this structure where we have different governments on board and on the steering committee, we're not focused on what the U.S. is doing in its procurement process. That's absolutely of mind for us in the U.S., but it's not something we're doing through Empower. Do you have other cases you can talk about that, that you're involved in it currently? Yeah, um, I should say we had our launch in December. And so what we did there was set forth the sort of priorities. And actually next week at our steering committee meeting, we'll ratify what looks like an action plan for the next year. But the priority work areas for Empower are going to be uh, urgent responses or urgent action on cases of threats to activists and organizations, coordination on worker-led campaigns around occupational safety and health as a fundamental right at work, eliminating gender-based violence and harassment in the world of work, which again reflects both the ILO convention and the tremendous progress that um, unions around the world have made, getting governments to ratify and then implement uh, new standards around that. And then finally, and this is the area that we're really sort of plotting out now, is country-level coordination. So we're in the very early conversations with the government of Honduras, the trade union movement of Honduras, as well as uh, private sector employers and empower partner governments looking at what the needs are there to advance workers' freedom of association and what pieces we can each take up to make that more effective than the work that's that's currently being done. And so that's a it's a slower process, right? It's mapping out what the needs are, what the gaps are, where things have, you know, despite a trade complaint and years of attention, there are still real challenges, including violence in Honduras. And mm-hmm. what we're looking at is not necessarily how to pour more money in or do a splashier campaign, but what are we each doing to support worker organizations and both support the government and hold it accountable and how we can each do that a little bit better coordinated across all of our efforts. Well, speaking of that particular example, there's a lot of violations that are being committed by U.S.-based corporations mm-hmm. um, in the maquilas, the garment factories, as well as in <clears throat> in mining and, and resource extraction. So I'm sure that can, that can pose some real problems for a U.S. Department of Labor, who's also working with the State Department and a foreign government. Do you have any thoughts on how do you get through all those problems? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we do engage with private sector employers and multinational corporations, both through our sort of reporting uh, at the national level globally on 
major worker rights violations on child labor and forced labor, but also through technical assistance programs. So technical assistance, to not be so jargony, is the, the programs that the U.S. government, and in my case, the Department of Labor, supports in other countries to impact positively on worker rights. And so you mentioned at the outset, we had committed $120 million under Empower. We actually exceeded that commitment in its first year, and we've committed another 130 million for the coming year. What those projects looks like are things, some are directly supporting trade unions. So giving them um, the backing they need to, you know, organize workers, to organize more effectively, helping them develop the skills and the communications to be good negotiators with employers and network them with other unions in the same sector, the same enterprise overseas. We also do uh, capacity building with the private sector, right? Like how do you not simply say that's down the supply chain, I don't know what's happening, it's not my responsibility to developing effective social compliance systems, to giving your suppliers or manufacturers or contractors the tools to actually effectively follow the law and make making sure that you're accountable when they they don't. So a lot of this direct aid that we do that is part of that 120 initially and now 130 million under Empower is looking at real practical cases of this. Well, I imagine one of the problems you're going to confront is that there are unions and then there are unions and some unions in other countries are are very democratic and some unions are pretty mobbed up or a very dictatorial or com- connected to corrupt officials in the government, et cetera, et cetera. That must be a tough problem to evaluate. It is, but I would say it's the same that we face in any spectrum, looking at Empower or just overall, right? You have governments, you have businesses, you have unions that are very strong on human rights, democracy, participation, inclusion. You have others that are all the things that you mentioned. One of the things that we're doing within the sort of structure of Empower, and I know this is probably less exciting, is how we screen partners and how we bring them in. And so first and foremost, because we are prioritizing worker voice within Empower, we're looking to the guidance of the International Trade Union Confederation, its affiliates to sort of, you know, very face value say like, this is a good player and this one isn't. But we also have, you know, within our terms of reference, a pretty involved screening process so that we're not just letting anyone at the table who says that they're a union and represent workers, because we're very cognizant that there's a, a huge spectrum. Okay. Well, we've been talking to Molly McCoy, who is with Empower in the U.S. Department of Labor. And good luck. Thank Um, you very much. We've got our work cut out for us. You do. You do. There's a big world out there and a lot of labor violations, unfortunately. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Judy. Hello, this is Mary Ario for Safety First. First, OSHA cites three Amazon facilities for hazardous work conditions from www.juris.org for January 18th. The Occupational Safety and Health Administration, OSHA, cited three Amazon facilities for violations of the Occupational Safety and Health Act. These citations were disclosed at a press conference held by U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York, Damian Williams, and Assistant Secretary of Labor, Douglas Parker. The citations describe workplace hazards that placed employees at risk for musculoskeletal disorders, 
including excessive frequency of lifting packages, falling packages, and unreasonably long shifts. Williams stated that all workers, including Amazon employees, have the right to work in an environment without hazards. The U.S. attorney announced that his office is investigating whether injuries were intentionally hidden from OSHA and investigative authorities. Parker said the injuries and hazards come from a workplace that prioritizes speed over safety and encouraged Amazon and other warehouse retailers to ensure the safety and well-being of their employees. The three facilities that received the citations are located in New Windsor, New York, Waukegan, Illinois, and Deltona, Florida. Three other facilities remain under investigation. Next, OSHA finds that Kansas City-based company failed to protect workers from an OSHA news release for January 31st at OSHA.gov. A fourth-year apprentice heating, ventilation, and air conditioning technician employed by U.S. Engineering Services suffered fatal electrocution after coming in, in contact with energized parts while repairing HVAC equipment on August 24th, 2022 at University Academy, a college prep charter school in Kansas City, Missouri. A federal investigation found the company failed to follow required procedures which would have prevented the incident, a violation also cited by federal investigators in July 2021 when another company HVAC technician was fatally electrocuted while working on a rooftop air conditioning unit not drained of all its energy in Wichita, Kansas. OSHA's investigation found the worker was cleaning a chiller unit in the academy's mechanical room while, when the electrocution happened. While the chiller's fan motor was turned off using the building's HVAC management system, neither a lock and or tagout was placed on the unit control switch to ensure electrical power was drained from the coils and air handler. OSHA cited U.S. Engineering Services for three serious and two repeat violations and proposed $197,000 in penalties. The company has 15 days from receipt of citations to comply, request an informal conference, or contest the findings. Finally, public employee deaths, preventable but not prevented. From the Confined Space blog at jordanbarab.com slash confined space for January 16th. A public works employee for the city of Normandy, Missouri in the St. Louis area was crushed to death when a tree they were working on fell on top of him. Fox 2 checked with other area municipalities about their tree trimming policies and found most cities reported contracting with private companies for large tree removal or rotting and damaged trees that can be unpredictable. They cited specialty training and supplies as well as insurance coverage. Normandy Mayor Mark Beckman said the city will conduct an internal investigation once they get past the shock. He said they are also in the process of contacting Missouri OSHA as part of the review. Mayor Beckman, who showed signs of shock, called it a tragic fluke accident in which Harold Parker, age 56, somehow found himself under the falling tree. First, there is no Missouri OSHA, there is federal OSHA. But federal OSHA only enforces workplace safety laws in Missouri for private sector employees. When public employees like Harold Parker die, there is no independent investigation, no citation, likely no lessons learned. Missouri is one of 23 states, including Kansas, where public employees are not covered by OSHA. The Protecting America's Worker Act has been introduced by Democrats in Congress every session for the past decade or so. Among other things, PAWA would require coverage of all public employees. The only Republican OSHA bill that confines base found in the current session is H.R. 69, calling on Congress to abolish the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. This is Mary Ario for Safety First. And now for the Heartland Labor Forum calendar. 
Working Family Friends is having a casino night tomorrow, Friday, February 3rd, 6 p.m., IBEW Local 124, 301 East 103rd Terrace, Kansas City, Missouri. The Johnson County Legislative Lunch and Learn, sponsored by the Voter Rights Network, is Saturday, February 4th, 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. at Johnson County Community College, Regnier Center, 12345 College Boulevard. Uh, it's in person or live stream. You can register at, <clears throat> I'm not even going to read this. You can find our, our uh, calendar on our Facebook page, the Heartland Labor Forum Facebook page, if you want the link. The UU Forum on Sunday is Our Environmental Health and the Arkansas River with Hayne Zacharias and Logan Healy. That's Sunday at 9.30 a.m., and you can go to the Unitarian Church at 4501 Walnut, or you can get a link by going to allsoulskc.org. Meet the candidates for County Administrator of the Unified Government in Kansas City, Kansas, Tuesday, February 7th, 7 p.m. at 701 North 7th Street, Kansas City, Kansas, at City Hall. Labor Notes, online training, beating apathy, assembling your dream team, and turning an issue into a campaign. That's three classes, February 9th, 16th, and 23rd, from 12 p.m. to 2 p.m. Central Time. Online, register by, go, uh, by emailing joe at labornotes.org. Once again, you can find our calendar on our Facebook page. And that's it for tonight's show. Next week, new NLRB rules for organizing and <clears throat> Fighting Times, a book by Jonathan Melrod. The Heartland Labor Forum is a member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Check out the rich diversity of programming related to workers and unions at laborradionetwork.org. Thanks to tonight's engineer, Scott Stanton, and stay tuned for the Thursday night special. It's Next Step Forward with Jasmine Jones. And please fill out the listener survey at kkfi.org and tell us your favorite shows. And, of course, Heartland Labor Forum should be one of them. That's it. listening to the Heartland Labor Forum, a show by and about workers, our workplaces, and our labor movement. We are radio that talks back to the boss, and you can talk back to us, too. Send us your feedback, your workplace stories, news, and ideas for shows to Heartland Labor Forum, KKFI, at gmail.com. Our website, where we archive shows and post our upcoming ones, is heartlandlaborforum.org. The views expressed on this show are ours and not necessarily those of KKFI or any of the unions involved. Tune in every Thursday evening at 6 or to our rebroadcast Friday mornings at 5 right here, 90.1 FM, KKFI. We still got our pride, cause we are the working class and that's the place to be. Power and-
To be